You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. And today on the show, we have the return of Dave Rubin. You'll know Dave as a political commentator and the host of the Rubin Report. Dave was previously on the Freedom Pact podcast last year, where his episode was received really well and broke some records. And he's back today. And before we get into this conversation, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, from me to you, if you've ever enjoyed an episode of the podcast or gained anything out of it and thought you'd like to support the show, the two best ways you can do that, that are completely free by the way, is either to subscribe to the channel on YouTube, that means a lot to us, or if you're listening on iTunes to leave a five star rating and written review, those two things are the absolute best thing you can do to help us keep bringing you this kind of content that you guys seem to enjoy. So this episode with Dave Rubin is a bit of a free-for-all. We talk about why you'll never be happy if you look at everything through a political lens and we also touch on a lot of hot topics and quite interesting points which Dave has very strong opinions on. He is a very outspoken character. I think if you've listened to the first episode or any of Dave's work, you'll know exactly what to expect. And of course, some of Dave's political beliefs or opinions might not align with yours. I know that Dave and I personally share a lot of political differences and Dave wouldn't agree with a lot of mine and I probably wouldn't agree with a lot of Dave's. But we tried to have conversations that span the entire political spectrum when we have conversations like these, as I think it is important to have as many conversations with as many different opinionated people as possible. I think that is an important thing to try and achieve. Obviously, you know that one day we'll be speaking to maybe Dave or, or Douglas Murray, who are on the right, and then other other episodes we'll speak to someone like Rutger Bregman, who was as far on the left as can be. So we tried to span the entire political spectrum. Uh, I hope you enjoy the return of Dave Rubin. Let's get into it. All right, Dave, welcome back to your second appearance on the Freedom Pack podcast. The first appearance, you are now the record holder for the most consumed episode in our history. So welcome back. Oh, well, I'm I'm honored and glad to hear that. Let, let's see if we can blow those numbers out of the water. I'll try to come up with something good here. Challenge <laughs> me. Challenge me. Amazing. So uh, the topic I'd love to start on straight away is one that I've been hearing Douglas Murray talk a lot about lately, and it's the danger of always seeing something through a political lens. Like when COVID hit, you know, it, it goes straight to it disproportionately affects women or highlights racial injustice do you think if we you know if we always view everything that happens through a political lens will we ever be happy no 
period. You will never be happy if your whole worldview is through politics. Politics is messy. Politics is a game of power. For anyone watching this that watched Game of Thrones, I mean, Game of Thrones was an endless war and quest for one tribe or one person or one family to rule other, other tribes or families or communities, et cetera. And guess what happens at the end of Game of Thrones? Spoiler alert, I mean, basically everybody's dead and there's about six people sitting at a table all getting drunk, realizing that everybody they know is dead. Politics, the game of politics is important in that people need some system to manage things. There has to be some, I would say, the lightest system possible. And I, I happen to think that the United States system of freedom and our constitution and bill of rights and, and more broadly, the capitalist system of economics, that is the best system we've got to keep the government off your back. But the, if, you, if, if, you, if that's all you got, if that's all you got, you will be miserable because the constant quest for power is not something that will bring you joy. You know what brings you joy? Art, music, creation, work, a sense of purpose. I think you need a basic, a guiding principle in life, whatever that is, whether that's through a religious lens or some people are able to do it through a, a, a personal, purely secular lens, but society has to organize around something. And I would want it to organize around the lightest touch of government possible. But if you're going to just, if every morning you wake up and you think that you must be worried about politics, either there's something wrong with the way you think or the political system you live under is really out of whack. And I would say from an American perspective and a British perspective, although our systems are pretty screwy at the moment, and I think there's a lot of bad leaders and there's a lot of bad signs and authoritarianism is definitely creeping in. You know, we've got systems that are pretty good here. And my preference would be strengthen those systems in that let's strengthen the, the individual first so that those system, systems aren't ever encroaching on us. You mentioned poor leaders there, and we were talking before we went on air about election night. Obviously, you covered it in depth. I followed your coverage at the time. What was your reaction like on election night, and how has that changed now with, you know, we've had a bit of time to digest it, because you often retweet something that Joe Biden's done that, you know, he's stumbling over his words. Is he a poor leader? Is he a poor leader? Well, I don't know that Joe Biden is in charge. Let's put it that way. I, I don't believe that if the buck is to stop with the president, I don't think that's the guy that the buck is stopping with. There is a movement, whether that's the Democratic National Committee, whatever the party is, it's a little hard to say, like, is it the Clinton machine? Is it the Obama machine? Is it the woke machine? Like, what is really driving Biden. Biden is 78 years old. It's fairly obvious to everyone he has some cognitive problems. And I don't tweet about it to be glib usually, although I, I end up making jokes about it because if you're going to tell people the truth, it helps if you do it with a little bit of humor, right? I, but I don't mock him because of potentially having dementia or some other cognitive problem. That's obviously very sad. I, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother in her last years when she was developing dementia, which eventually uh, veered towards Alzheimer's. We never got a, a final conclusion on that. But I know what it was like, that, you know, constant repetition, losing words, stumbling over things, frustration. These are all things that, that obviously Biden has. Everyone knows it. And what I always say about Biden is the scandal is the non-scandal. 
the scandal is not that there's something wrong with him. We can all see that. The scandal is that the media refuses to talk about it, that they, they make you feel like a conspiracy theorist if you just comment on what you're seeing right before your eyes. And that's, that's really dangerous because when it breaks, when it gets to the point that he can't read the teleprompter anymore or just can't get thoughts out or is really far more impaired than he is now, and I would say now is fairly impaired, well, then suddenly they're all going to, all the people around him are suddenly going to say, oh, no, no, I knew. And I wanted to say something, but they wouldn't let me say something. Like Barack Obama knows, obviously. Jill Biden, his wife, knows, obviously. So anyway, without, without belaboring the point on that, I, I don't love this administration. I think, you know, a lot of a lot of the decent liberals, the last few decent liberals thought that Biden was going to be the bulwark against the crazy woke stuff. But everything that he's ushering in is woke. I mean, they talk about equity constantly. They don't talk about equality, which is what we have in the United States. They talk about equity. We, we made Pete Buttigieg the transportation secretary, not because he has any expertise in it, but because he's gay. We have a, a assistant, I think, at Health and Human Services, Rachel Levine, who it's not that she's qualified for it, but she's trans. And now it comes out that she's been talking about getting young children on puberty blockers. I mean, these are radical positions and, and, and appointments, I should say, that are made not because of qualification, but because of immutable characteristics, because of color of skin or sexuality, things of that nature. That's the reverse of what the American experiment is supposed to be. So I don't think there's really anything good coming out of the Biden administration. My, my hope is that individual states, you know, like we've got Florida here doing a great job with Ron DeSantis, the governor, just keep the federal government out of the states and let the states make some decisions for themselves. That's the way the system was supposed to be set up. And hopefully the federal government doesn't just keep coming and coming and encroaching. Speaking of woke, I logged online the other night and I read something and I originally thought it was satire. I, you know, I, I had a little chuckle at it and I moved on, but I keep it's a fine line between reality and satire now, you know, it really is. So I kept seeing it pop up and I read into it. Have you seen this Coca-Cola telling employees to be less white? I, I cannot believe that that was a real story. Yeah, so it's a little unclear to me exactly how much the connection had to do with Coca-Cola themselves and then some, some other company that they were using through LinkedIn, I believe, that then was bringing this diversity and inclusion stuff. But in effect, employees at Coca-Cola were seeing this messaging talking about being less white and they were getting delivered and supposed to listen to these programs about, in essence, uh, telling white people that they're all racist and you have to bow down to everyone else forever. This is modern racism. I mean, let's just call it what it is. This is racism. If you were to say to black people, be less black, or being black means you think X, Y, and Z, that would be racist. So if you do the same thing to white people, yes, it is racist. Now, what they would say, what they would say to steel man their argument is that no, racism is skin color plus power and white people have power and black people don't. Well, that, that's just not, well, first off, it's not even the correct definition of racism, but I know that they don't, you know, that they always want to redefine words. But, but putting that aside, the idea that, that racists only can be the people with power is crazy. You could be a young Hispanic person and just through these horrific ideas that these people are pushing, start hating white people just because you could be a well-to-do young Hispanic person. Forget, forget young. You could be a Hispanic millionaire 
You've built a great business, you're a millionaire. But then because you hear all of these horrible messages about how white people are mean, you start becoming racist towards white people. Would that make you not racist because your skin color is a little darker than the average white person? And also the idea that white people just have it good by the very nature of their whiteness is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I could tell you a million stories about what's happening in the middle of the United States related to the opioid crisis and homelessness and other drug use and all of this stuff that, that primarily is affecting white people. I mean, there's more poor white people than there are poor black people. The obsession with these things is designed to destroy all that is good in, in these Western civilizations. And that's what we got to fight. It's interesting because a story like this, I, I keep seeing her on like free media platforms. Like, you know, I've seen her on Crowder and, and things like that, but I don't see it from any mainstream media platforms. Are they too scared to, to go anywhere near a subject like that? Yes, because they've gone in so deep on calling all Republicans and conservatives and Trump supporters and anyone who isn't woke racist and bigoted and homophobic. They've gone so deep on that that now, like anyone with with their head on halfway straight would know there was something deeply, deeply wrong with that Coca-Cola messaging, the idea that you should apologize for being white and the rest of it. We all know that. But if CNN was to was to cover that story, and I, I would bet anything that they did not cover it, okay? Uh, even though this was all over Twitter and all over online, as you're, as you're pointing out, if they were to cover it, because they have spent so much of their time brainwashing people into these stupid ideas, into these really backwards, what I would say are truly racist ideas, their own audience would turn on them. I mean, if Jake Tapper had to explain this to his audience, his head would explode. Now, Jake Tapper, I actually think he probably believes in his heart that something like that is racist. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he's brain dead. I think, you know, you start working for mainstream news and then in essence, you're just pushing propaganda all day long while you're always saying that the other guy's pushing propaganda. That's the key to the whole thing. You push your propaganda all day long, but you always make a point of saying, no, 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 but it's the other guy who's doing misinformation all day. So I don't sit here, and when I do my daily show now, I don't sit here and tell you I, I am the only person telling you the truth. I'm trying to clean up some of the nonsense that mainstream media is pushing on people. And, and unfortunately, you know, I say this on the show a lot, we sort of, those of us that are somewhat free thinking, we're gonna have to accept that a certain amount of people simply are brainwashed. They simply are blue-pilled. It's your job to hopefully get them to wake up uh, but you can't spend all day doing it because you'll be miserable too. But we have to accept that a lot of people just accept what mainstream uh, gives them. And that's, that's very unfortunate, but it's just real. It just is. Hmm. Last time you were on the show, we talked about Jordan Peterson returning. I know you're a good friend of Jordan's and, and I, I think you recently interviewed him about his, his new book. And at the time when the book was coming out, there were a number of employees at Penguin who were, um, you know, they, they were kicking up a fuss about, you know, not working for a company that would publish his book. Is, are those the kind of people that need to read Jordan Peterson? Because, yes. I think, again, last time we spoke, we talked about how dangerous it was to not have ideas and conversations that are different to yours. What are they doing to themselves by almost trapping themselves in that sort of echo chamber where they, they won't even be a part of a company that publishes a different book that, you know, has ideas that they don't? Well, there's so many layers of craziness here. First off, if you go to work for a publishing house, 
then I would suspect whether whether you're literally the janitor or you're the head publisher, you you perhaps care about books. You perhaps care about ideas. Maybe the janitor doesn't, but but for the most part, if you're a young editor, if you're someone in the publishing department at any level, even if you're in the graphic design department, the idea would be, oh, I like books. I like ideas. I want to help ideas spring forth. Nobody in their right mind thinks that a that a 22-year-old who gets their first job out of college should have decision-making power, or I should say veto power, on, on what books a, a place like Penguin, which is pretty much the number one book publisher in the world, should publish. They're, they're my publisher, by the way. I was very disappointed that these kids were okay with me getting my book out there. I guess I'm not quite as dangerous. I like to think I'm a little dangerous. I guess I'm not quite as dangerous as, uh, as Jordan Peterson. But first of all, so the idea that, that these kids would have any influence is crazy. In a, in a normal situation, if the world was the way it should be, they should be fired immediately. In other words, they, could, they should be allowed to register their complaints. Let's say you're, you're a young editor and there's somebody that, that is, it's been signed and publicly announced that they're writing a book and you really don't like that. Well, I would have no problem uh, with them registering a complaint or talk, you know, submitting something online or talking to HR and say, you know, I, but once it escalates to the point of where this has been broken public and they're basically saying, you know, a whole bunch of us are getting together and we're not going to work or whatever it is that they're going to do. It's like, you're in the wrong business and you've got to be fired. Sorry, you must leave. You can go work somewhere else. We're not canceling you because of your ideas, but you're, the thoughts that you're promulgating are contrary to what our job as a publishing house is. And you know what? If if you're woke and you're nervous about Jordan Peterson's book being published, there are plenty of woke publishing houses you can work for. And I guess you just can't work for Penguin. And I, I thank God for that as someone that is uh, is having them publish my next book as well. So look, the, the real question that you asked there was, should these people read Jordan's book? That's the irony. That's what I was tweeting. It's like, man, if you guys would just read the book instead of Instead of imagining what it says in the book, not only are you not going to find anything racist or anti-trans or anti-gay or any of those things, you're going to find the very tools that will empower you not to be the miserable kid who thinks that the world must bow to them instead of being somebody that will uh, work hard and maybe be in a place that doesn't fully fit exactly what they think, but, but that's what life is about. So they've done everything backwards there. Fortunately, uh, you know, the book did not get canceled. Absolutely. Another thing I'd love to get your, your take on is a few weeks ago, I spoke to Brett Weinstein again on the show. And we were talking about the current state of the intellectual dark web, which you're, of course, a member of. Um, and we, he, was, he was speaking to you about the departure of, of Sam Harris, who turned in his IDW card. <laughs> and Brett, uh, as far as Brett thought, he thought it was to do with him. And he said to me that, you know, he, he understands why Sam, um, you know, wanted to walk away and he felt partly responsible for it. What do you make of Sam Harris's departure and what message do you think he was trying to say? Yeah, actually, before I answer that, can you tell me a little bit more about why Brett thought it had something to do with him? Because that's interesting to me. Yeah, he mentioned that it was the way that he handled um, the election and talked on some of the topics, including vote the fraud. Oh, meaning because Brett addressed those things and yeah, Sam so was he, so against addressing them. Oh, okay, got it. That, that's really interesting to me. Um, I would say my take is probably a little bit different, but, but sort of fits within that, which is that, look, 
when the, when the IDW really blew up, you know, and, and we were all talking about the dangers of identity politics and wokeism and all this stuff, all the stuff that everyone's talking about now that has burst forth into the mainstream, there was a bunch of us, probably about 15 of us, you know, four or five years ago that were talking about it publicly um, and then all had various degrees of success as a group and then, and then singularly, right? And it was a really beautiful thing and we didn't even know what it was. And, the, and when Eric Weinstein, Brett's brother, coined the phrase intellectual dark web, it was sort of a joke, it was sort of silly, but it at least gave us a rough name for these people that were just kind of willing to talk about stuff. It's been, it's been I would say, very, um, uh, I don't know if depressing is quite the right word. It, it, it's been a real eye opener for me to see what's happened with the IDW. So first, we should remove Jordan from the equation because Jordan obviously had health issues and I'm, I'm so thrilled that he's coming back. And as you said, I, I actually just interviewed him yesterday. We're gonna post it on the day that the book comes out on March 2nd, but I spent two hours with him and uh, it was just so great to talk, talk to him again and he's coming back and it's just so wonderful. But let's remove him for a second because you know he had to dip out because of health reasons. I would say Ben Shapiro on the, on the right side of the IDW, let's say, the right side politically, that he, has maintained his popularity, continued to fight for the things he believes in, uh, open to different conversations, all that kind of stuff. Then, then there was sort of the more left-leaning plank, which I would say was Sam Harris, the, the Weinstein brothers, a couple other people. On the more right-leaning, I would say there's also Douglas Murray, who I, I absolutely think is one of the clearest, greatest thinkers that we've got. Ayan Hirsi Ali, her husband, uh, Niall Ferguson, a couple other, couple other people. And I would include myself on that sort of right-leaning part of it, let's say. I think what happened on the left-leaning part, and I think it's probably uh, most specifically pointed at Sam, and I guess this is what Brett was, was getting at, is that Sam went so in on the anti-Trump stuff that he literally sent a tweet to Jack Dorsey saying, thank you for banning Trump from Twitter. And it's like, man, you know, all of us, we had all sorts of political disagreements without question, not only political disagreements, we had disagreements about the nature of reality and God and it, the, the biggest existential issues you can imagine. But we agreed that that open inquiry, that free speech, fighting censorship, that these were the, the bedrock ideas that we should all be putting forth. And that's what made it so cool. That's why so many people were attracted to it, whether they were left-leaning or conservative or whatever it is. I think when Sam did a few things like that, I mean, look, if you're happy that Trump got uh, got booted from Spotify and the rest of these platforms. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's like, who has more power, the, the president or the guy who allows the president to speak? Um, but to send out a tweet that basically says, thank you for censoring, um, you know, I think that sort, that notion, this is not an attack on, on Sam personally, I've discussed it with him privately, but that very notion of like, oh, thank you, tech overlord for taking out the guy that, actually never came for anybody, really, four years, didn't take out the media, didn't start any new wars, did a whole bunch of good stuff. I would say did actually relatively well considering COVID because he let, left it up to the states, which I think was the right thing to do. And if, if Biden had all the answers that he said he would have, well, how come things are still not great now? Uh, the point is that's just a whole big complex problem that probably nobody has the perfect answer for. But I think the thing around free speech has really caused, that caused a real split. Um, so I sense there's a bunch of people that are kind of frustrated with Sam. It's, it's disappointing for me. Just for the record, I'd be willing, still be willing to sit down with any of the guys and gals and talk to them and have it out. But I think, I think the idea of the IDW as some sort of like card carrying group, um, which it never really was, right? Unless my laminated card got lost in the mail. 
Um, I think that that's kind of over at this point. And, and I'll just say one other thing on this. I would say that the right-leaning people on this have been able to make really nice inroads and make allies. I mean, look at me that I can say that Glenn Beck and Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro and Larry Elder, that these people who I have some political disagreements with, it's becoming less and less, but I've been able to build all sorts of cool bridges over there. Well, show me, show me any instance of one of the left-leaning people being able to build a bridge with the wokesters. Guess what? Zero evidence of it. That wasn't a white power sign. That was zero evidence of it. So I want to go to where the conversations are. I want to go to where the fertile ground to build things is. And to me, I see that on the on the right side. Would you? Yeah, that, that's another thing you mentioned there about uh, big tech and and you know how they stand in terms of next to politicians. And Brett also hinted at this. He, he suggested that you know these guys are the heads of big tech. They're almost as powerful or even more powerful than world leaders now. What would you say on that? Yeah, I mean, look, it doesn't matter what you think about what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Let's just remove the, the specific instances from it for a second. Several big tech oligarchs decided to do a digital assassination, to commit a digital assassination on the president of the United States while he was still a sitting president of the United States. So it wasn't just Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. It was Spotify. As I said, it was Pinterest. So the guy can't listen to music and he can't post pictures of apple pie or whatever they're doing on, on Pinterest. I mean, the idea that, that a couple people who have, who have extraordinary amounts of money and influence over the world, who can literally decide what we can see and what we can hear and how we can communicate, they decided all at the same time, in effect, to take out the president of the United States. And as I said before, well, then who's more powerful? Did Trump have, you know, you take those last 14 days of Trump's presidency, he couldn't do anything. He could get no messaging out on there. There was also another moment that people didn't really cover, but you know, it's not just that they took out his real Donald Trump account. He, had, he also had the POTUS account, the official president of the United States account. At one point he tried to tweet and they deleted his tweets in real time. I think he tried to send out three tweets in a row and the, tele the, the tweets just got sucked away into the ether immediately. So it's like, these guys have, it, we can't even imagine the level of power. And, and by the way, this has pushed some of my, my constitutional stuff to the limits because you know the founders in America were always worried. And, and, and by the way, the founders of every Western society that do it right, they're always worried about giving too much power to the government, but our, but our government, our founders really did it right with the constitution, but they could have never imagined that it wouldn't be the, the government coming for your speech. It would be a giant tech machine. They, they, they simply, their imaginations could not have possibly ever imagined it. I mean, imagine if you had handed this to George Washington, he, you know what I mean? Like I couldn't have done that much with it. He would have never been able to, to get it to the home screen. So, so that is the risk that as brilliant as our founding documents are, in some ways they need to be updated for a digital world that is not the physical world that we were setting up for because there is something more powerful than the government right now. Uh, yeah, the government's got us on lockdown and you can, uh, you can, you can you know, do it or not, but whether, they, whether you can communicate with people has nothing to do with the government at this point and that's equally as dangerous. Yeah, one last thing I'd love to touch on before we go is, and, and it's extremely interesting looking into America now from over here in Britain at all these things. And one of the things that really strikes me that I, I don't really have much knowledge on, but I'd love you to, to tell me, is that 
you know, when you're, when you're a kid over here and you watch TV, it's all Americanized. You see all these glamorous places in America, L.A. being one of them. You grow up thinking, man, I'd love to, you know, move to America, go to L.A. But I look online lately and all I'm seeing is these pictures of crazy homelessness in L.A. And I see all these celebrities, they flee in L.A., they're packing up, they're going. What's happened? <laughs> well, as you know, I'm in L.A., at least for now. And it's it's weird, man. Look, when when you see those images that I know are being seen worldwide, you know, just think about the cities that they come from. San Francisco, run by progressives. Los Angeles, run by progressives. Seattle, burning down with Antifa, run by progressives. Portland, home of progressives. Where is it not happening? You know, it's odd. It's not happening in Dallas, run by conservatives. It's not happening in Salt Lake City, run by conservatives. It's not happening in Tallahassee, Florida, run by conservatives. There might be a theme here. There might just be a theme about law and order, about, um, about civility, about following the law, all of those things. So, the, so one of the things that I find as someone in LA right now is that it's, it's a bizarre thing for me that so many of the lefties can't seem to realize that the things that they vote in for, the people that they vote for, then bring the policies that increase homelessness, increase drug use, crush the schools, hurt the economy. They always vote for high taxes. Well, if you're a businessman, why would you ever want to start a business in a high tax place? I mean, trust me, I just sat down with my business managers and we crunched the numbers. And if I was in Florida, I would have a lot more money. That, that's just a fact. That's just a fact. So look, at one level, to, to sort of reference something I said before, this is how the system was supposed to work in that we were supposed to have states making decisions for themselves. And we have a beautiful thing here that most countries don't have, including you guys in Britain. I mean, we really, you can move to another place in the United States that is much more in line with your views. That might be Florida for me, ultimately. Most countries don't have that. So we really still do have something that's working, although I, would, I think there's reasons to even worry about that at this point. Um, but why do these things happen? They happen because big government does not solve anything. And San Francisco is the best example of it because they destroyed the city that was the tech hub of the world. And everyone knows the, the housing prices are out of control on top of all the other issues that I just mentioned related to drug use and homelessness and everything else. And guess what they're all doing? And I was just there last week. They're all fleeing to Miami, Florida. And the, and the hope is, well, okay, guys, you're going to flee here. But if I'm the average Floridian, I'm going, well, you know, don't bring all of the bad ideas and policies. And my hope is that these people that move, that they realize it has a little something to do with who they voted for. Because the last thing we would want in the world is, is Florida going the other way. Um, so all the states that are doing well right now, it's pretty great, but you got to be careful because you're going to get infected. You know, a bunch of locusts are on the way in and you got to do a little bit of work to make sure that they don't eat all the crops and leave everybody hungry. So for everyone watching or listening now, just remind them again, where can they buy the book, Dave? Yeah, you can go to don'tburnthisbook.com. We're also on Amazon UK. We actually sold the original printing of the book sold out in the UK literally in the first day, I think in like six hours. Uh, but Little Brown Books is our publisher in the UK, and I think we're stocked again. And as I said to you last time, I, I hope when this nonsense ends, I can get back to the UK because when I was when I was touring with Jordan, I, j I just love the UK audiences, and you know I love just uh, you know going to Oxford and Cambridge and London and and all of those things and and meeting the people and everything else. So hopefully, 
hopefully we get past some of this and we can start traveling again. And, and I'm working on the second book and I certainly hope at, by, at least by then that I'll be able to tour it. Yeah, can't wait, man. And I hope to see you at an event in the UK sometime soon. Thanks so much for coming on again, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, more importantly, I, I hope we beat the numbers from last time. Let's hope so. I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do on the Twitter. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. I do appreciate that this episode was quite a bit shorter than normal. My apologies for that. It was just the way that the scheduling lined up between Dave and myself. Obviously, going forward, we'll be going back to 45 to an hour plus long episodes. So I appreciate you sticking with me today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you'll join us again when we see you on Friday.